Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome to another episode of the Oil Food Basics Discover podcast. This is episode 90 and my name is Derek Craig and this is the show that we learn something new about our incredible industry on every single episode. Today we're going to be talking about all sorts of topics from, from geopolitics to market intelligence uh, to development strategies, uh, regulatory. We're going to be talking about all kinds of stuff. We've got Trisha Curtis here with us. She's president and CEO of PetroNerds and host of the new PetroNerds podcast. Um, she'll be joining us here in just a moment. And if, if you're new to this show, I definitely want to extend a welcome to you. We've got 89 other episodes for you to check out. Uh, we'd like to interview individuals from all kinds of different segments of the oil and gas industry so that we can have a better understanding of what goes on in their world and ultimately so we can be better informed uh, and you know communicate to our neighbors why this industry is so great or whatever that looks like and ultimately to curb our desire to never stop learning. So definitely check those episodes out and also check out our website, wolfofbasics.com for some great free and premium content like videos and courses. And we've got a killer deal going on right now. Uh, so definitely be sure to take advantage of that while we're starting up on the, the course side and, and prices are still low. So definitely check that out. And with all that said, if you'd like to get involved with us, uh, definitely reach out, contact at wolfofbasics.com if you want to be on the podcast, if you want to do some courses with us, uh, get your name out there, whatever that looks like for you, definitely uh, uh, email contact at wolfofbasics.com. So Without further ado, joining me today is my co-host from the previous episode. So if you listen to that, he's no stranger to you. He's a sophomore petroleum engineering major at the Colorado School of Mines. He's going to help lead us through this conversation today. Nicholas Bryan. Or Nick, how's it going, man? Man, living the dream. <laughs> that, that's that's a great answer. <laughs> they're, they're, what Dave Ramsey or something, like, better than I deserve, right? So that, that's another. That's it. <laughs> oh, yeah. can't, can't complain. Uh, life's... life's <laughs> been pretty good to us so but uh how's, how's things going with you anything changed uh at colorado school of mines since uh, last recording any big news no no we're just uh, moving steadily forward uh school of mines is slowly getting <laughs> back to normal uh having more and more good. person more, more uh, in-person classes perfect uh things are looking up for us here in sunny golden good deal yeah weather's been perfect so i know at least my mood's uh, been picked up lately <laughs> with oh, yeah. the the sun the clear days and everything and and you got some uh, real big news too on the personal front uh internship lined out this summer hope you don't mind uh i guess making it public <laughs> oh yeah yeah i just uh i was signed on to work with uh concho down in west texas this awesome. summer awesome uh, they went through a, an acquisition and they are now part of conoco phillips and conoco phillips was kind enough to honor those offers so uh, I'll That's be joining great. them in West Texas this summer. Looking forward to it. That's good news. As opposed to, I guess, probably a year or two ago, probably wouldn't have been honored. <laughs> yeah, so right. yeah. congrats to you there. And I'm excited for you. You'll have to keep us posted on, on how your summer's going. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> anyways, without, uh, without further ado, our guest today, as alluded to before, Trisha Curtis. Uh, she's a well-known industry advisor and public speaker. Uh, she's also sitting president and CEO of PetroNerds. And like I said before, now started up PetroNerds Podcast uh, under the ever-growing Digital Wildcats umbrella. So, how's it going today, Trisha? Great to have you it's on. It's great. How are you guys? Fantastic. <laughs> can't, can't complain. So I guess we're all, um, we found out just ahead, just ahead of hitting record here that we're all uh, Denverites now and we could have done this in person. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, we should be in Golden drinking beer, honestly. I mean, this is a, we should be outside drinking beer right now recording this, but you know. We can, we can be in our houses for now, I suppose. Right. We're almost through this. We'll help. <laughs> Hopefully, I guess maybe at some point, uh, meeting back in person will just be the norm. So <laughs> we're, we're getting there. Slow and steady, I guess. But uh, anyways, like I said, great to, great to have you on. Uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, about yourself. What got you into energy and oil and gas? Because I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, I feel like your, your, your background is, is not energy uh, related. So I guess tell, tell us about your, your journey in there and uh, ultimately oh, what's going on with PetroNerds. Uh, sorry about that. Sorry, my other computer was speaking in the background. <laughs> my apologies. Yeah, so great question and really appreciate it. And thanks for having me on the podcast. It's Absolutely. fun to do um, the, I, I can, t we were talking before about the technical di difficulties <laughs> of podcasting. So I immensely appreciate everyone who does it. Cause if you, if you're thinking about starting one up, it's, it's, it sounds great in theory. And then it's actually hard <laughs> when you, when you go about doing it, not just the content, but the, the technical side of it. Yeah. Execution. Yeah, I, yep. um, so based here in Denver and, uh, Petronerds is the company is actually only about, um, I mean, I, I quit my job in, in DC in December, 2015 and started this company up in January of 2016. So, and moved out wow. here in like February, 2016. And you're so just like Colorado is the place to be or how'd you land on Denver? No, I mean, it's, so I grew up around, I grew up around the business and in the, oh, okay. in the, 
the labor side of it. So my, yeah. my grandfather pumped oil wells in Wyoming and my dad pumped oil wells in gotcha. Wyoming and Northwest Colorado. And I grew so up in, your blood. in um, what? It's in your blood a little bit then. It is. It is. <laughs> that, so growing up around pump jacks and stuff and like, I was thinking about like actually, you know, thinking like feeling good when you see a pump jack and like right. feeling like that's home. Like that's, or like, um, I'm one of the people that you like, you know, fill up your tank and you smell gasoline and you're like, mm, that's good. <laughs> like apparently there's a percentage of people that like, like the smell of gasoline. I'm definitely one of them. Um, but it's, yeah, so it's in my blood and my other grandfather was a wheat farmer. So, um, and most of the rest of the family is honestly in coal. So very commodities rich um, right. family. And so you're used uh, to ups and, and downs. Very, <laughs> ups, lots of ups and downs and super hard working, very strong work yeah. ethic. And so the, and very entrepreneurial. So sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just bust your ass and, and get it done. And so grew up in Northwest Colorado and Southwest Wyoming, very small town. And then, um, was fortunate to get a scholarship at Regis University here in Denver. So, um, came to the big city when I was 18 and, and learned, uh, I mean, it was, it, it was awesome to have a scholarship to Regis yeah. and, and, double majored in politics and economics, didn't thinking, not thinking I would be going to work in, right. in oil and gas. Otherwise I should have honestly gone to mines because <laughs> I'm highly jealous of you engineers. And I love, love the engineering side of the business. Like I can see behind you, there is actually, you have frack sand and I believe like coffins <laughs> and stuff behind you, which I know those because- uh, Good eye, nobody's them. ever commented on that before. <laughs> yeah, those are, you have like, I know yeah. you have like the silica- I've got sample jars, sand. yep. I've got yep. flow back sand, I've got a mix of everything back there. <laughs> yep, yeah. Uh, so love, love that stuff. And actually that's sort of what's kept me, you know, the learning side of the business is what's kept me in, but honestly studying economics in undergrad, I remember studying oil and I was really, it didn't, it was hard to study within economics. It didn't fit within the box really well. And it was obviously highly influenced by geopolitics and it, and it didn't fit well on the supply demand curve. Um, there were lots of different factors that could change prices. And that's honestly what had me started like interested in it. And then I did my master's, uh, I tanked the LSAT and didn't go to law school. And I went to London School of Economics instead and did my master's in international political economy. And I uh, was that was right when the Bakken was literally just starting. So my uncle was working for, for EOG as a consultant and he was drilling and my dad had never drilled, but he went up to work with EOG as well and yeah. drilled and ran their surface casing rig. And I loved hearing the stories about it and just, um, and that like entrepreneurial drive, the ability to just go do it and uh, to learn it and just crush it. Um, and that was really fascinating to hear about the local farmers who were just like, you know, had the you know they actually own the mineral rights and so the you know yeah. the wife's bringing out like buckets of cookies and brownies <laughs> to the to the workers and so i was fascinated by it then and um did my dissertation on chinese national oil companies and then just wanted to i really wanted to work in energy and unfortunately and I, I literally just said this on the digital wildcatter podcast but yeah. i i couldn't i mean I couldn't get a job in 2010 when I came out. So I was very um, unfortunate there in that, I mean, I put hundreds of job applications in and got nothing. And so it was a much different, like heart of the recession in 2010, 10% mm -hmm. unemployment. And it was, for a lot of people know this, like if you were coming out of school, it was really rough. And so I bought a one-way ticket to DC and I cold called every energy organization and really wanted to be in, in oil and gas. And so I, um, cause I was fascinated by it. And I worked at this small think tank called the Energy Policy Research Foundation. And it was just <laughs> extremely fortunate to do, um, I cut my teeth on the Bakken, on the oil sands, studied production, self-taught myself the, you know, enough engineering and, and geology to sort of understand how the Bakken worked. And that really just made me fascinated about like how it, how you fracked it, how you, you know, what mm -hmm. type of crude it was, what type of refinery it needed to go to, which, you know, the, how it was transported in pipelines. And it was sort of a never ending learning process, which mm -hmm. I absolutely loved. Um, and that sort of, I became pretty obsessed with it and I uh, just loved it. And then I sort of, you know, I was there for about five years and realized that I wanted to do, I'm very entrepreneurial and wanted to start my own business. So I started with my colleague and, and was off to the races. And it was then 2016 was a great time to start a business in oil and gas because, you know, <laughs> they're being hammered with oil prices and nobody's really hiring consultants or right. anything. So you, you have to sort of carve, carve your, your, your way through it. And you have to develop a reputation and it is, uh, it's not easy by any means, but, um, I'm super passionate and I love it. So I've just sort of been, you know, pounding the pavement since then. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Definitely a very, uh, cool background and how you got into this. And like you said, even just so much you've seen in the last uh, five years and being involved with, it sounds like different assets and different, um, different types of production and, you know, just kind of tracing the, the value chain down the line. That, that's pretty Absolutely. awesome. 
That's yeah. awesome. And so I guess um, with, with PetroNerd specifically, um, so it's an, it's an advisory firm, right? Is kind of how you brand that. Um, what, who's your, who's your customer? I assume, I assume EMPs, um, oil and gas companies, right? Yeah. Like, and then what do you do for them? Um, that is a great question. And honestly, <laughs> ENPs have never been, I have worked with ENPs. One of our first, you know, we, we did some work with some local companies when I first came to Denver and did asset valuations and really came at it from a, a different approach of not a typical like firm doing an asset valuation. Cause we're very, uh, I pride myself in really understanding the operators and, mm-hmm. you know, speaking with people in the industry and just really thinking about how the, marrying the data so what is the where are the wells you know how long are those laterals what are they actually producing what are depths are they producing from what what reservoirs and when you're not a geologist or an engineer you tend to actually look at it a little bit differently so you know doing a asset evaluation on the dj for example in 2016 the first thing i noticed was the southern part of the dj was nice was where conoco phillips was there were some bigger wells and you know that's the DJs are really tricky, you know, in some regards that that area has been a little tricky, but then lo and behold, extraction came in there not too long after and, and bought up that, that asset and that acreage. And then really, you know, the core of it sitting on, on the condensate stuff. So it was cool to actually from a non, from a non-engineering background approach those assets and actually approach it from, you know, the types of operators, their behavior, what they do, how they think, how their, um, the data and production actually matches up to the earnings calls or maybe how it doesn't. Um, mm-hmm. So that's sort of the, the tech that we sort of did in the beginning. And really, I, you know, from my the beginning of my career, which has been, you know, in my 20s to, to now, it's been 10 years and it's been awesome is that I've really that whole value chain has been super helpful and that I, you know, was able in the nonprofit was able to have a lot of exposure to executives from, you know, major oil companies. And that was a lot of, you know, talking to chief economists and, and folks. So being able to do a lot of stuff on the macro um, and, you know, working with Department of Energy and Department of Defense in DC. And so the the macro side was really great. And I also, you know, had a, a background in that in school and having a really good foundation on the macro side, it's really nice because a lot of my folks in, in um, that I work with are service companies. And I would say I've worked with private equity firms, I've worked with service companies, I've worked with operators, I've worked with local governments, foreign governments, um, you sort of name it, I've worked with them. And it really is people who um, recognize that they need additional insight and help on market intelligence. So it's, I would, I characterize it as really granular market intelligence, but I like to work really closely with all kinds of different businesses, whether they're barely touching oil and gas or whether they're exposed to it a lot, because a lot of folks just don't realize how important it is to understand risk. And like right now, you know, understanding regulatory risk is super huge. I mean, even even if you're a renewable company or your wind company or your solar company and you think you're going to be able to put your your stuff online, you really need to make sure that your um, the utility company that you're working with is going to have access to natural gas and they're going to be able to take that on in, in whatever five years when you have that built. So, I mean, there's just a lot of aspects to this business that um, span sort of the value chain and, and risk assessment is a lot of what I do. And a lot of times, almost always, no matter what you do, it comes back to understanding understanding the basics of production, understanding who their operators are at, where they're at, where their wells are, how much they produce. And then it's, you know, from there you can sort of do anything working with mids. I've worked with midstream companies, you know, evaluating where you're going to lay pipe and, and which, you know, assets are good and which are bad. Um, and, and just honestly giving my honest opinion um, has been, you know, having an independent evaluation and studying it and knowing the, the data cold is, um, I think that's what's, what's valuable for a lot of folks and for executives and stuff to be able to just call me whenever they want to. And I pick up the phone and, and tell them how it is. That's, that's basically <laughs> what I do in a nutshell. Awesome. I guess we all need uh, someone like that in our lives. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I, I tell a lot of people, people don't often hire me because they love what I say. They, they usually hire me because they need to hear what I say. So it's, it's, yeah. if you're looking for somebody to sugarcoat it for you, I am not the person. <laughs> well, sounds good. So definitely, definitely a lot going on uh, in your world right now and a lot that you're, a lot that you're watching out for. Um, and goodness, my head's spinning just even here listening to you talk already. Like so much going on uh, for sure. I guess you know for for those of us so like myself um, who's not as familiar with the markets overall and, and how they operate, what people are looking at, and how it's trending, all of that. Um, I guess what would you kind of say the, the the climate on it is right now? How are people reacting? Where is it heading? Um, you know, what are the big concerns right now? I guess specifically ener- energy, right? Oil and gas um, mm-hmm. companies, but I guess just your overall uh, quick take um, kind of dumbed down to, to my level, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think we can start it from a broad perspective and narrow it down because yeah. it's all interlinked. And I think what's there's probably some things missing on a, on a local granular level because 
Um, the fact that prices are $60 a barrel, a WTI, West, mm -hmm. West Texas Intermediate, um, it does get people a little bit complacent. And I think I'm already starting to see and feel that in the industry is that businesses seem to be a little complacent, things feel comfortable. And um, on a micro level, they're not really realizing the the massive regulatory burdens and the sort of the onslaught that's coming in from DC. Um, that's very, very real. And, and it hasn't a fully come into effect because the executive orders haven't been fully interpreted or actually, um, um, like actually implemented either. Mm -hmm. But I think globally, if we just start from a macro perspective, I mean, we're, we're going to have a news any day of what OPEC plus is actually doing. And that this macro picture, again, is something that a lot of folks in the U.S. service companies and um, and local operators probably don't spend as much time focusing on that they need to is just having a, a good understanding of it so they can at least tell their executives or their managers or their boards, because typically it's how you actually have to make your decisions as a company. And, you know, if you weren't drilling or Oil, if you were drilling during this downturn in 2020, um, it's probably because you weren't able to sell a really good story to your management team or to get your board to approve it. And honestly, you you should have been drilling in, in 2020 because day rates were extra, excessively cheap. Mm -hmm. But I think that knowledge of the macro, I mean, OPEC plus is meeting. We have different viewpoints from Russia and Saudi Arabia sort of on how they view the market in in overall they're they're pretty much in agreement that they they kind of want to start bringing barrels back onto the market but roughly we have about eight million barrels a day of supply that's been curbed out of opec plus so it's largely mainly saudi arabia united arab emirates oman these countries within opec and then russia and some other countries that have pulled barrels offline and that has allowed the market to recover considerably because we've been able to draw down global stocks. So as as we had the COVID shut-ins, these economic shut-ins, you know, the, the stocks of crude oil, not just here in the mm -hmm. U.S. and Cushing, Oklahoma, but around the world have filled up. And we've seen in the last, because of these, these this production that's been shut in, we've been able to, in the third quarter and fourth quarter last year, we've been able to sort of draw down those stocks. And that's helped to a great degree on increasing prices, the prices that you've seen sort of coming back. Um, and then now we're we're basically at a uh, at a point where we're kind of at an inflection point in which you know demand is looking a little better. There's obviously huge hopes on the vaccine front. We've seen the the vaccine for the coronavirus be mm -hmm. very effective in a lot of cases. We've seen cases come down, and really it's the question of when does the the average person like you and I get the vaccine, and when when does the economy start fully reopening and people mm -hmm. get back to not just get back out there, but flying. It's really, mm -hmm. you know, when we're thinking about oil demand, I always say yeah. very simply, it's 100, prior to COVID, it was 100 million barrels a day supply and 100 million barrels a day demand. That's basically where we're at in the world. So when we think about the next big thing from understanding the macro is, is obviously, you know, people like to use the buzzwords energy transition, which is very, um, you know, words thrown out a lot. And there's a, there's a lot to sort yeah. of unpack within those, those two words. But it's important to understand the market, which is roughly 100 million barrel a day market, and then the, the words energy transition. So prior to, that was prior to COVID, we're probably between we're 95 and, and 97 million barrels a day of demand right now. And again, like I said, we have a lot of the, that production that's offline. So when you think about that, I think right now we're getting to the point in these 60s and $65 a barrel for Brent. You're getting to the point where it's getting a little too hot to handle. Um, I personally think it's over. It's the prices are too high. They need to come down a little bit, and not just for because the the long term demand. If the Saudis and Russians are really concerned, they need to pull be pulling prices back a little bit. The India, uh, the country of India is already really concerned about prices because the higher they're going, the more pressure it is on them. So we could actually start seeing the recovery in demand be impacted if prices get too hot too quickly. And we already are seeing massive inflation. You know, I think the stock market is very is. You know, I'm, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn saying this and lots of podcasts that I think there's a lot of froth on this market. I think the SPACs or the specially, you know, special purpose acquisition companies are ridiculous. I mean, the, everything's sort of too hot to handle right now. And oil's kind of come going into that as well. And then you have this energy transition, which is um, we were talking about it before and, and companies were accelerating toward that. And you had the majors like you know, the foreign majors like BP, Shell and Total, who had all heartily sort of embraced the natural gas side several years ago and had been pushing in on natural mm -hmm. gas and slowly getting into renewables. And then 2020 was really a catalyst for I mean, we already had investor pressure in the U.S. side for for shale companies that just weren't generating enough free cash flow for for um, and genuine enough really returns for these shareholders. And uh, we're kind of duped by thinking they were going to get 30 percent rate of returns. So that 
you, COVID sort of catalyzed the the thinking about energy transition, the pulling that forward, and this massive investor pressure to really really uh, hammer the the push the U.S. Uh, producers down. And then it's really accelerated BP, Shell, and Total to really push forward really really hard in the energy transition um, and go into renewables really hard. The trouble with that is that they're not. Um, I mean, they're using their their money that they're making from oil to actually invest in the renewables in hopes that those will eventually be profitable. But the reality is that. The market, Wall Street and, and global markets are not having a, a, a true understanding of what environment, ESG, environmental social governance actually means and how the, the world still needs uh, oil and gas production to be consumed. And so they're penalizing oil companies for producing it. But we um, we very well could have some problems and some stickiness if they're if they're not producing it. And in fact, they have to produce it in order to maintain the cash flow that they need to invest in these renewables. I mean, BP said very clearly in their earnings that their their wind projects are not going to actually generate returns until 2030. So that's a really long time for, for some of these renewables to turn. And we're talking about single digit returns. So mm-hmm. in a nutshell, that's how I sort of characterize that industry transition. I'm not ripping on renewables. I think they have a place. I just think that uh, folks have to understand them and, and definitely from a business and investment right. perspective. Right. Um, but when you sort of keep drilling down into the US and how that works for companies is that we're not seeing that nearly as loudly from the operators. I mean, Pioneer had their earnings call, EOGs had their earnings call, Diamondback, and they all talked about um, uh, they all talked about the ESG side to a degree, not nearly as much as we sort of obviously heard with the majors. And they're all talking about, you know, reducing scope one emissions and retooling some of their wells and what they're doing. I, they're not fully appreciating. They definitely didn't talk at, at great length or depth about, um, you know, the, the climate change uh executive order from the administration. And, you know, they've sort of dodged, I think, a little bit on the federal lands issue. So I don't think that's being uh, understood on, on a great level on a super detail. And, and that's probably because they they don't know a lot right now, hasn't been fully implemented. Um, but I think it's going to continue to cause a lot of consternation. And I think it's something that the industry is 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 really not appreciating and kind of avoiding at the moment. Um, so that's sort of if we, you want to keep going down on the micro, you can. <laughs> I'm sort of taking you back to the U.S. and the major issues. Is that helpful at all? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that definitely helped, definitely to, helped to, place to, it. to place it. Yeah, Tricia, I got a question for you. Uh, what What would be your advice to U.S. shale right now? You know, I, I think a lot of us are, are kind of thinking that $60 is a little bit of a pipe dream. Um, yeah, it, from, from our perspective, you know, hiring hasn't really increased. We don't see a lot of uh, evidence of increasing activity at this uh, kind of new price bracket that we found ourselves in recently. Um, maybe do you think that that's kind of reticence on the part of U.S. shale to, to pick back up activity, knowing that things are going to go back down a little bit? And, you know, can you speak to that? And can you if you were you know, in a room full of uh, shale players, what would you advise them to do? Yeah, I, those, that's an excellent question. I think, I mean, the fact that you have an internship with with ConocoPhillips is awesome, by the way, um, and that, that, that they were that. I mean, I. Frankly, I'm a little shocked that they that they did because um, so you're you're that's you're very fortunate. If I was to advise a bunch of shale players and particularly executives or and and management teams is that um, I think what they're doing right now is being extremely cautious. I don't think they think sixty dollars is a pipe dream, but I think that they you, we have to appreciate it. We have to appreciate how unprecedented, as we know how how you know when we saw oil prices go negative in April. I mean, we're all watching the ticker and we're watching it drop. And technically, it wasn't even supposed to go negative, but the CME group changed the rules the night you know the weekend before. But I mean, that depth and that correction, it 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 literally wrenched and you know hurt people so much in terms of mental mentally how they were thinking about the business. And that compounded with that in, in, you know, intense investor pressure. And then think of all the ESG pressure, all the you know, energy transition pressure now. It's really compounded to put so much weight on the U.S. shale sector that I honestly don't think they, they truly know what to do right now. So they're sort of giving these very cautious outlooks saying we're not really growing. And what you hear in all the earnings calls is, hey, we're going to every dollar we get back, we're returning to shareholders. And, and you know, they keep getting the questions, you're not going to increase production? And they're like, nope, nope, we're not going to increase production. I think interestingly, EOG, and, and I happen to, you know, I'm not just talking the book, but I, they, they happen to stand out in that, I mean, they still talk about like they're exploring, like they, they're going to grab up acreage, mm. they're going to, they are actually, they can grow eight to 10% to $50 oil. Um, and th- it is advantageous. And honestly, I think it's important to listen to companies like them and listen to companies like Chevron, because they admit that they're an oil company and that they produce oil for a living and that that's, that's what is there what's going to give them cash flow and that they're going to invest in that and i think that's really important to understand is that 
you know, these companies have to be careful of getting in the crosshairs of how investors view them. They need to be very good at what they do, and they certainly need to be environmental stewards, and they need to, mm -hmm. you know, make sure they've got all the best valves and hatches, and they've got their methane emissions down, and they're doing all that. And at companies like Diamondback, so they're, they're investing in all that. They are. And this industry is exceptionally innovative. You put a challenge to it, it's going to do it. And I think the, the shale sector will absolutely rise above this. But I think it's really important to focus on how you the messaging and how you're messaging this to Wall Street and who who do you really want? To, I mean, are you trying to get in a long only portfolio? I mean, what's the goal with what these investments? Because mm -hmm. if they're not moving the needle on your share price, you have to be very careful, you know, how you're spending it and what you're doing. And I think that's that's a lot. Much of that's undetermined. I also think it's really important and. I am kind of talking my book here because it was what I do for a living, but it is exceptionally important whether you are in a service company or you are an upstream player, that you have a differentiated opinion on the macro, that you are not just high, you should be hiring people like me, you should be hiring much multiple people like me to get a different opinion and vet that against your boards and your internal team and your staff to say, you know, how do we really view this? And are we hedging? Are we not hedging? You know, what are we doing? Because we're also hearing pressure from, you know, not wanting them to hedge. And you always hear that when oil mm. prices are going up, you know, unless you're in private equity, you're, you're hedged. But if you're public, when oil prices are going up, you know, people are like, oh, hedging's not great. Hedging's going to look really great if prices slip 10 bucks, mm -hmm. you know? So it's just, and it's harder to hedge now that we're sort of backward dated and your forward curve is a little messy, but it's just important like to be thinking about that and not just think about it is that you have answers when you get a hard question on your earnings call or something, or not even if you're private, is that you have answers to your board and your investors and people of how you view the macro and why you're investing. And if you don't have that view of, you know, where you're, where the world is sort of at and what you're doing, I mean, that's why I think it's really hard for me is that in 2020, there was a massive amount of opportunity, not necessarily on the acquisition mm -hmm. front because the bid-ask spread was still pretty wide. But I think in terms of if you were in the oil business and you were going to drill and produce oil a year from then, mm -hmm. why weren't you drilling? You know, your day rates were exceptionally cheap and it was typically probably because you were afraid or you couldn't convince right. your board, you couldn't convince management team or whatever. But there was really no reason to not drill and, and you know, at least drill a duck, you know, at the very least. Um, but you could have actually drilled and completed wells at rock bottom prices and then brought that production on to $60 oil. Um, and if I was running a small company, that's exactly what I would have been doing. But it would have been hard because people would have been nervous and scared right. and to have the and capital. Exactly. But that's mm -hmm. just like when you when the markets, you know, that's like buying high and selling low right. um, in the stock market. And I think that's typically a lot of times what the oil industry does is they yeah, tend to, exactly. to scale back when when prices slip, when the company should be, you know, saying if we're if you're if you're going to be in the oil business, unless you're getting out, then, you know, you need to stay the course and you need to have that, you know, and that's why it's really important to have that market intelligence to back up your day to day decision making. And I think you can have a much better run efficient company. And th there are a lot of micro things that you can do from, you know, efficiency standpoint, whether it's your, you know, your actual microgrids or, or whether it's, you know, how you're handling your water or, or clearing or everything like these are all major components that are really important to get right because they're all expensive and you need to find ways, you know, creative and innovative ways to reduce those costs. And I think that gets back to hiring, you know, smart, hiring young, smart people and, and not just young, any age of, of intelligence of people, but to be to be really thinking about what are the innovative ways we can reduce costs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. A lot of good stuff in that. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I would like you to kind of clarify um, what what your thoughts are on the prices, because I heard kind of two things where it's like, um, you, you could see where it would scale back, um, but at the same time, operators, like you said, we're, we're heading into $60 oil, or we are at $60 oil, right? And, and nobody's really investing to grow their production and assuming that demand keeps growing, right? With, with COVID getting, at least bringing people back on the streets. How, how would the price not be going up like through the rest of the year? Well, so it, I mean, that's your project. I mean, Goldman Sachs is calling for it to be 75. You have a lot of folk, other folks calling it for it to be 80. I mean, okay. I know that energy aspects um, and Stato, formerly Stato and now Equinor, you know, last year mm -hmm. I was in some some webinar. I was actually, it was last fall. I was in an OPEC briefing with them and they were calling for 80 this year. So they were oh. calling for well over 80. So I, you have that demand and you do, but the the thing is, I think people don't realize how quickly production come on, come online. So yes, maybe shale producers are a little scared and they're, they're nervous, so they're not going to like grow production like crazy. Not all of them, by the way. So pull up the rig count for look at the individual operators in the Permian Basin and look who, look who added rigs from July onward. It's all the small, tiny little companies, the one and two rig companies that everybody said were done, that everybody mm -hmm. said was out. So if you're listening to mainstream media or mainstream like, you know, outlets on terms of the oil and gas industry, mm -hmm. they're telling you that a, a, 
the wrong story. I mean, Bloomberg and, and Reuters would have basically, if you were following them, you would have thought that, you know, the private capital is gone, the private equity capital is gone, and those little players are gone. And yet, lo and behold, those little players are the ones that are, you know, have a ch large chunk of rigs and have been going at it. And that's to exactly to my point is, frankly, they probably had the guts to talk to be like, hey, we're going to drill, we're going to drill this. I mean, and we can still get a low date rate. So let's go mm -hmm. at it. So I mean, that's part of it. I think the 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 caution I have with people on oil prices is that I have been doing this for 10 years and I've yet to see the shortfall of investment that people have always talked about materialize. And yes, I don't have the gray hair that, you know, some of my <laughs> seniors have and they've seen that shortfall of investment materialize. But the problem is you we can produce a lot of oil now and it's pretty easy. I mean, $60 oil other supply, outside the U.S. This is the other thing that OPEC plus has to be worried about. It's not just the U.S. And they're, they're maybe a little too focused on that. It's, it's Brazil. It's Norway. It's all these places. But and Norway is bringing production back online. It's all these other mm. places that, you know, $60 oil, oil is pretty profitable in a lot of places. And that is because it's actually because of U.S. shale, because mm. shale helped push, you know, drive everybody to these lower break evens and helped, you know, morph the entire global oil market and turned it on its head. And now everybody can't, you know, lots of industries that weren't shorter cycle in nature are, and they focus that way. And we do have unconventionals coming up in the Middle East. So I just think there's a lot of production around the world that that can be easily produced at $60 oil. And we're sort of living with, um, with OPEC sort of maintaining those curbs and we have to realize that you know iran's wanting to bring two million barrels a day back online we still don't know where the administration is on sanctions with iran it, it seemed like they were going to be a little bit looser so we were sort of expecting that uh, those barrels to come back people say that's baked into the market i really don't think that is if iran was to bring two million barrels a day back and and uh you know, OPEC was to say we're bringing, we'll let Russia put another million barrels a day. Saudi Arabia was to take their million barrel a day cut and then say, hey, let's do another. You're talking about like five million barrels a day like that. Hmm. The market's not ready for that. It would, prices would soften. But hey, if prices go to 55, that's a pretty healthy environment, not just for global oil, but, but for shale. And I think people have to hmm. realize that there's this, this sort of sweet spot around, you know, 50 North 50 that people have to get comfortable with and that you can make money in. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um, I'm I'm curious. Well, I guess anything from you, Nick, before I kind of transition a little bit on, on anything you just said. Yeah, yeah, uh, I got I got a couple questions. Okay. <laughs> um, I was talking to uh, one of uh, Derek's coworkers at uh, Oxy some time ago, and you know they have a fair amount of GOM exposure. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned mm -hmm. um, the regulatory environment's really shaping the uh, the present and the the foreseeable future you know, of of American uh, plays. What do you think is going to happen to uh, these various plays. Maybe if you can just briefly touch on, you know, basin to basin. It seems like GOM is, is kind of doomed because they're at the mercy <laughs> of the Fed. Uh, you know, it seems like uh, like a lot of Wyoming stuff is, is really going to experience that. A lot of Utah stuff is going to experience that. seems like West Texas kind of stands to benefit. But what, what can you say about um, these different basins and how they're going to individually react to, to market forces and to uh, regulatory forces uh, can you look in your crystal ball and tell me what's going to happen? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been talking about the crystal ball for a while, and I think it's it's bad. I mean, it's it's negative for production, um, and it's it's not good. So there there are several things I think when you think of you know immediately, and I, I've been outspoken about this and had some videos on this with with the digital wildcatters, and have been very you know very much on the record prior to Biden getting elected that this is not Obama 2.0, and this is going to be a really this is one of the single biggest things that's ever happened to the U.S. oil industry is this administration um, and the, the regulations that are coming down the pipeline. So for if you break all that out, Gulf of Mexico, it, that is that is all federal. So new leases and any new permits. And I, that's very complicated because if you if you look at like if you listen to Chevron, and you listen to some of the earnings calls, they're confused. They don't know yet. So if you read through the executive order and I, I tell everybody this in my podcast, but I encourage read it read through the actual executive order on climate that it's it was placed in january 27th and read through the um order number 3395 that the state department uh or the, sorry the, the secretary of interior actually issued and those are really broad and just relatively convoluted and, and very sweeping they sort of a, a open the door for a lot of different stuff to come in there but gulf of mexico is you're not going to see new leases they already rescinded uh, a lease sale the bureau of ocean energy management which is basically the, the ocean version of blm already rescinded a lease sale so we're going to see production decline you're not going to see new 
you know, aggressive investment. Because when you when you take off the ability for new leases and new permits, nobody's nobody can invest in that. So you will see that decline. And I think that's what the market doesn't understand. That's what people, the average person outside mm-hmm. of the oil market does not understand is that, you know, if you take off, you, it, it's like, it's like any business if you just said okay well you can have your electric vehicle market now but you can't ever Mm -hmm. expand it Mm -hmm. you know you can it's like locking the front door of a business yeah yeah it's just like saying okay the electric vehicles that you planned on building through this year that's great okay but you can never build another one that would be like people like the electric vehicle company would go out of business they would go somewhere else because Mm -hmm. it's just not going to work for them it's no it's any business that if you're curbing it and um, these companies in especially in the gulf of mexico have contractual leases with the federal government that is part of an on all federal land that basically is predicated on them being able to get the permit. So it's going to be very messy legally. But if we just say it's, you know, they're not going to, the it'll be tied up in the courts for a while and it's going to be hairy. The problem is like the state of uh, Wyoming is predominantly most of that's federal and, and some of it's commingled. You have state and fee and it, it gets mm-hmm. very hairy. But the problem is, is that even if you had some technically some private land interwoven within the Powder River Basin, you ha- you don't have enough permits that are on a pad, you know, to do that. And that's people in the industry, you know, that, I mean, you're, if you have a 16 well pad or a four well pad or three well pad or two, it, you just, you have to actually be developing these assets um, in a manner that you're, you're draining the oil properly, that you're doing all the mm-hmm. reservoirs properly and doing this together. So when you're impacted on the regulatory side of saying, well, you can't do it here and you can only do it here, it gets very messy and you're just not going to have business because mostly, I mean, so much of Wyoming is all federal. Mm-hmm. It benefits North Dakota because that activity would shift to North Dakota because there's a lot of private land there and the administration did pull back on the tribal land stuff. So in the Fort Berthold Reservation in, in North Dakota is um, does have a lot of oil and gas production on it and it is good rock. So you'll see North Dakota do well if if the Dakota Access Pipeline is not in jeopardy. And very, it does seem like the Dakota Access Pipeline is very much in jeopardy. So it's a double whammy for the Rockies if they have, mm-hmm. you know, Dakota Access Pipeline gets gets whacked and that's emptied and you have 570,000 barrels of a crude that then has to go down through Wyoming, essentially. You'll have the differentials in Wyoming and Colorado blow out massively. Um, and a little bit of benefit and that you'll probably ha- you're going to have declining production in Wyoming. So you'll you'll be able to absorb some there and offset it. We already have declining production in Colorado because of the incredible regu- one, not just COVID, but if you just look at Colorado production, I mean, the regulatory environment has definitely had an impact on it. It's nothing's coming back in Colorado because of the, um, you know, the, the laws that have been put, the legislations that has been put in place. So, I mean, that's continuing to decline. So the states that really benefit are Oklahoma and Texas because they have very limited federal land. So you'll see all I think all the gas plays in Oklahoma are going to do really well. I think all the gas and oil in Texas. I think the Haynesville is absolutely going to blow up. I think natural gas is a massive and critical pivot point is something that mm-hmm. the industry needs to lean in really hard from a you know, just how they talk about it, how they understand it. And really, I think from a business standpoint, there's a lot of running room there. But the state of New Mexico is going to be hurt as well. Um, you, Utah, actually, the Uinta tribe because the U Indian tribe had actually written that very stern letter to the Secretary of Interior. And um, it was amazing because they're just ripping on them for taking away their sovereignty. But <laughs> they have one third of the mineral rights in the Uinta wow. Basin. So the Uinta Basin has declined and it's you know from 80,000 barrels a day to like 65,000 barrels a day production. But it's a meaningful contribution to their, um, their economic well-being. So they, there was a reason why they did that letter. And um, I think that the Uinta Basin because of that could actually prosper. And they're actually trying to, I believe they're trying to put in a big rail terminal to take this, this it's light sweet, but it's waxy crude to actually move it. Um, so I think in pockets that if you if you're really studying this on a micro level, there are areas where you could invest and you could actually do well because certain places are going to do well because you may have some stranded assets and and you could do different things with it. New Mexico is is going to be is in a really really rough spot. I mean I've said this in my podcast. I've broken down the permits. I mean, if you if you're a service company, this is stuff you need to know cold. You need to be studying it. You need to have the data in hand. I mean, you have about 3,500 permits in the state of, in the Permian Basin, in the southern part of New Mexico, and that's all the permits you're going to get. You're not going to. I don't think for the next four years you're going to get any more new permits. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those permits just aren't going to be those wells aren't going to be drilled and completed because they're not fully. So many companies just not fully permitted. We have a lot of companies here in Colorado that have New Mexico assets that are just small companies that, you know, if you've got 20 permits, unless that's a 20 well pad, 
you're not going to drill all those. It just doesn't actually make sense. These are stacked reservoirs, some of the best rock in the entire world. This, this is stacked pay. You have to drill and complete it together to really prevent, you know, having drainage issues. It's not like you can just do one reservoir and come back 10 years later, you know, five years later and do the rest. Not, you can't even really come back two years later and do the rest. So it, it's extremely cumbersome, burdensome, and it's that production will decline. That being said, Texas is going to get all the I mean, they're just going to get the revenue and the activity and everything. I mean, and the state of New Mexico has also written to the Secretary of Interior and told them that, that because they're being unfairly impacted because they have federal land and they're seeing the rigs move to, uh, across mm. the border and that's impacting their revenue. So this is all going to, this stuff is playing out now. And that's where I say, I, I feel like the industry, at least in the earnings calls, are don't sound mm. like they're taking it as seriously as they should. And and I do think have to be should be more vocal and should be talking to the public about this because it is going to impact, you know, local local environments is going to impact state coffers and it's certainly going to impact jobs and mm. uh, and energy prices. Where do you where do you place Appalachia? Because you I mean you talked about Haynesville blowing up. Yep. Um so Appalachia is it's it's okay on a federal land thing, but yeah. I think that the way the re- le- legislation and stuff is going to be way sort of written is I, I do think you're going to be going after really hard on methane emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, again, the industry needs to work on that stuff, but uh, Appalachia is kind of screwed because they've got a couple BCF a day left of pipeline capacity. We're never going to build a new pipeline, mm-hmm. you know, certainly not in the next four years, you know, the building of a new pipeline in any small or big is really, really difficult if we're looking, especially, I mean, if we have if they empty the code access pipeline, the legal precedent is just going to be huge to go after other pipelines. So the Appalachia, the Marcellus is really in a tricky position in that it just can't grow. And so the same thing I'm explaining for the Gulf of Mexico and New Mexico is it's really hard to do business or bank on that. You know, I think the the EQT and the Rice Brothers are, mm-hmm. are doing great things. And I'm sure they're trying to navigate this. But, you know, that's it's it would suck to be to be there and realize I can't really, you know, how far can I grow this? Now, that being said, there's going to be company, a lot of companies have sort of sold out and pulled out of the Marcellus um, because it just wasn't working for them. And it's given opportunity for a lot of other companies to sort of mm-hmm. do well with it. But this is gas. It's a smaller molecule. You can pump a crap ton of, you know, that hopefully you have some hundred mesh behind your head there on that I shelf. I believe I do. <laughs> um, but you can, you can pump a ton of that and you do really well with it. I mean, these, these are monster wells, mm-hmm. but I think that's the problem is you just can't grow it because you won't have, you know, you're not going to have that continual takeaway capacity and takeaway capacity is so important to have that redundancy so that you don't have, you know, big blowouts and differentials and that you can do, you know, do business. And, you know, that's where things, if, if the Appalachia declines, that's where it could really impact um, and, or you can't build out the pipelines and you can't get mm-hmm. to the East Coast, that's where we can really start impacting on energy prices and the ability to actually bring on renewables on the Goodness East Coast sakes. because they're not going to have, they won't have access, ample access to, to natural gas. And so mm. you'll see, I think that's where Haynesville does really well is because you'll see, um, I think you're going to see foreign companies maybe want to enter actually. You're going to see Asian Asian countries and Asian companies very interested in making sure they can secure that gas at low prices. And if I was an Asian country or Asian interest, I would be actually wanting to go all the way to the wellhead right now in the Haynesville and control my own destiny and then get that through Chenier or another artillery or something and make sure that I have controlled that and I have access to that. Hmm. Goodness. So, what what what's the deal with the pipelines? Like, I didn't, I didn't realize there was so much federal control. And is this like an outright ban on the pipe? Like, I honestly don't know any about pipeline permitting and federal involvement. So, it's it's not an out it's not an outright ban. It's it's more of a movement, and it's a the inability of the sort of nimbyism and not in my backyard, and, and folks just the ability right. to permit a pipeline. And it's it's basically oh I mean the fact that so within hours of, of, of Biden taking office he did cancel the permit for Keystone XL so that was largely symbolic I mean it probably it you know didn't get built under the four years that that Trump approved it and really uh, I think without the Trump administration you probably wouldn't have seen the Dakota Access Pipeline get go through because it did see so much political opposition um, so Deb Holland who's the nominee for the Secretary of Interior who may be facing some opposition within Congress to get approved. She is a, uh, she's from New Mexico. She's Native American and she is actually, um, a, a, she's very much against or was uh, protesting the Dakota Access Pipeline. So she is certain, was not a proponent of it then is on the record for that and um, is not a friend, uh, you know, I mean, she's just not a proponent of oil and gas. So that, all that taken together and there have been changes within FERC um, so there are just massive changes within DC and everything energy. So the writing is poor on the wall to get any new development. Um, and because everything's so very much focused now in DC on the energy transition and on renewables and in that climate change executive order, there is, I mean, basically the goal is to basically have the grid 
um, the our electricity grid completely green by 2035, which is a massive, massive uptake. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of the focus and it takes, you know, very much away from anything hydrocarbon related. But the movement on on pipelines is not so much administrative as, as it's, uh, you know, a lot of just people not wanting new pipelines because of the you know, the, the anger and opposition around the oil sands and the, the movement around Keystone XL and sort of that came into the Dakota Access Pipeline as well and um, and just unfolded and sort of ballooned. And but if the if the Army Corps of Engineers does decide against this uh, ruling against the Dakota Access Pipeline, that gives a legal precedent to to very empty a, a pipeline that's flowing. And that has real big consequences because Enbridge has a, a line five that goes into Michigan and that line five is a part of their main line. It takes in uh, natural gas liquids and um, NGLs and it also takes in crude that goes down to the Midwest. Um, the governor of Michigan, I believe is, and we talked about this on podcast, it's not out yet, but the governor of Michigan, I believe it's Whitmore, she has asked, she called for last December to actually empty the pipeline to shut it down. And it, um, I she realize they just, can do this. Well, they, they, she, so there's no legal precedent to actually do this, but she wanted to do it. So she called to empty this pipeline. And then she ironically issued a, um, uh, just recently during these storms, she issued a, an emergency order with regards to propane mm. to lift the to lift the driving limits to let, let them have propane. So that pipeline actually provides them with 65% of all the propane that they have in their state and the upper peninsula. So if, if she was to empty that pipeline or shut that pipeline down, she wouldn't have propane in her state. It would be a massive wow. problem. Um, so it's a huge, and if you know, like, I don't know where you guys grew up, but if you guys understand propane and understand, like you can actually, you know, you can actually bottle it and truck it and take it places. So it works really well in these cold parts in the upper parts of the country. Mm -hmm. um, it's very rural. nimble and flexible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In rural places that we had propane growing up. So, I mean, it's, it's massive consequences that, but in, in a nutshell, it's a, it's a movement essentially. Wow. <laughs> what, what a strong narrative too. I don't, I don't think, I, I, I wish like just the general public would listen to that to this episode and that, to that, what you just talked about, there's a lot of this that, that we don't talk about as an industry. Um, it's frustrating too. So <laughs> a lot of, a lot of really strong, strong points on that. Um, I am, so you, you hit a little bit about decarbonizing, basically decarbonizing the, the U S grid, right? It sounds like that's the initiative. I believe you said 2035. Um, I should know that for a fact. I think it is 2035, right? I believe it's 2030. Okay. <laughs> Something think it's, like that. It's 2035. Okay. Um, All right. Yeah. So, so definitely challenges and stuff with that. And, and a lot of, um, we have a, a big uphill battle as, as an industry with like what you talked about, like the nimbyism is like, oh, we, 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 we inherently rely on oil and gas, right? And like we talked about, even the propane and stuff. And, and sometimes we don't realize that until uh, an emergency, like a climate emergency, like we had, uh, you know, with um, the real cold, cold temperatures that, that swept the nation. Usually does about every, every winter, right? Um, but people yep. just, that they want it, but they don't want it in their backyard. Um, so I guess like as, as an industry um, or even as, an, uh, as a nation, like, like what, what should we be doing on that front to ultimately not shoot ourselves in the foot, but at the same time be responsible, you know, as a nation with our energy supply and, and how we're generating energy and, and, and transitioning into, to emit um, less emission, you know, prone types of, of electric generation. I mean, it's it's a hard thing because I think people do get political about it when it mm -hmm. when we sort of need to remove the politics and we need to be, um, especially in the industry, we need to be as least biased as possible because it's it's easy to just be like, you know, renewables are bad. And, you know, that's what you hear from a lot of the industry of, of, of they, they sort of rip on renewables and say it's really expensive. And, and the reality is, is that, you know, renewable prices have come down. The problem is, is mm -hmm. that. Uh, you know, they, they've come down to a degree, but they, they are they're not standalone, it's not directly subsidized. The cost of capital is just very available because we mm. have, you know, very low interest rates and negative interest rates in some countries. So and because you have uh, now you have this political momentum behind it, people just the, the investing is just kind of going crazy into it. And so if you created these sort of two bifurcated worlds where investors and everyone is bananas about green tech and electric vehicles and and now you have legislation behind it saying we gotta you know greenify the grid and get completely completely green by by 2035 and these are things that i i will go on the record saying i think it's virtually impossible to do that you will we will have we will be the most insecure energy country in the entire world with massive blackouts and brownouts if we were to um literally go off hydrocarbons off our grid by 2035 if they embrace carbon capture, which would cost a crap ton of money, they could do that. But it would still be, it, I don't think they will, because it's a, it would, it would benefit hydrocarbons. To what do you degree. mean by carbon capture? 
for like carbon EOR. capture from so they could they could do carbon capture from from actual existing coal fired power plants and they could okay. they could capture that put it in, into the ground where their technology out there just extremely mm -hmm. expensive or they could do carbon capture on on natural gas fired power plants etc mm -hmm. but the reality on the on the just the electrification or the, the sorry the, the electrification of the grid or the greening of the grid is that you to bring on those renewables like for for texas for example the reason those storms um it, it there were a number of events that came together just i always say it's like like the bp oil spill one thing didn't cause that right it wasn't one failure it's mm -hmm. it's a bunch of failures and a culture that came together and it's the swiss cheese model of everything lining up just right same mm -hmm. thing for the storm in, in texas and and these power fa failures is that you know you have this de massive demand you know temperatures get cold people start demanding more and the the grid sort of wasn't wasn't ready but then you had also issues i mean you, you couldn't access the the natural gas and and then the electricity when they when they started the rolling blackouts they shut at, down electricity actually in the field so the production that producers were trying to pump the the oil and gas couldn't actually pump it because they didn't have the electricity so i mean you had things where lots of little micro failures like that that came together to produce a big problem um, the the other side of that is that it's not just you know it's not just the grid right it's a complex thing and people but people have to realize that to bring on those renewables the reason Texas Texas if you pull up their grid they have actually lots of natural gas very little coal um, the rest of us all have a ton of coal on our grid and very little renewables and they have more renewables like wind and solar because they have the natural gas that can actually pull that in um, and so to bring on more renewables you have to have something like a combined cycle natural gas facility to actually handle the changes in that in the in the grid handle the changes in the power coming up and down um, and so it gets it's complicated and it's expensive, but from, you know, the upstream side, from the actual production side, I think it's it's just important for the industry to really uh, to to be out there. Like I think now people are saying, you know, t they're kind of ripping on the American Petroleum Institute a lot for for saying, you know, the API just came out and said they're they're backing uh, a, a carbon tax or a carbon price. Um, and they're sort of embracing this to sort of move forward. But I think, you know, you've had a lot of, you have the big companies that talk for the industry and it's no longer, the, the big companies didn't create the shale revolution. It's the small companies, it's the engineers like yourselves that did it. And I think it's those voices and it's those smaller companies that need to get out there and say like, this is this is the jobs being impacted. This is what we're doing. And, and you know, honestly, I, I I, I think people don't appreciate how hard a lot of folks in the industry really work. I mean, how people are out there when it's freezing cold and they're busting their ass and they're pumping these wells and they're, you know, drilling. And I mean, I think Diamondback had said at the end of their call that they just wanted to, people to know how hard their guys were in the field working not to get the gas because they wanted the damn prices for it, but because they were trying to get, I mean, half their family didn't have power and they knew that they were trying to get those back online and it's it's cold and they're fighting that stuff. And it's no different than in North Dakota when it's 40 below and they're, you know, and they're producing this stuff. I mean, there's just a lot of grit um, and in these people and what they're doing in the field. And I think it's it's no different than any business and, and everything else is that just a lot of hard workers that are doing this. And I think that, um, you know, what people do, how hard they work and the, the fact that, you know, oil is being likened to tobacco and tobacco doesn't have a BTU content to my knowledge. It doesn't provide really a benefit other than enjoyment of, of nicotine. So I don't, you know, this is an energy source that has a lot of value to it and, and fuels how the, the world sort of works and like it or lump it, whether you can not like it, but it is, um, it is necessary and will be necessary for a long time and transitioning away from it. You can dent it, but it's, it's just going to be very difficult. And it, it's just appreciating, understanding how that works and not, you know, and being reasonable about it. But I'll, I mean, energy is, is an extremely important and very, very controversial thing in the world right now. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, well said there too. Um, I'm uh, so I know it's I know it's your job, uh, ultimately as, as advising uh, companies on on all of these topics. But I mean, when you talk about you know Iran sanctions, OPEC regulatory, and, and all these investor calls, right? And a, now API, like I don't know how do you keep up to date with all of this. <laughs> It's a, it's a, it's a lot. Um, I study a lot. I'm very fortunate. I don't really have a life. Um, so there's, <laughs> that, that's part of it. Um, and I, I genuinely love it, but it's, it's something that if you really want to be, um, to differentiate and some people a lot of times ask me like, who are my competitors? And I would say, honestly, I don't give a shit, um, who my competitors are because, um, I'm going to probably outwork and outstudy everyone in the room. And I, it's not because I am smarter. I, it has nothing to do with, with being smarter. It has a lot to do with just working a lot harder and studying. And you really do have to keep up with this stuff. So it's hard. Like, 
I'll, um, fortunately the work that I sort of do, some of it's very in the weeds and I'll spend a month, you know, mm -hmm. or I'll spend a couple weeks crashing on it, you know, per me and stuff. And then I have to get out of that. And then I got to go focus on the macro and study everything going on in China, in India. And so I'm, I'm very blessed in the type that of, uh, the couple unique clients that I'm doing, I'm, I'm forced to do that, but it's also just like, it's studying everything. And I stay up late and I watch, I watch Bloomberg and, and usually watch the Asian open and the Middle East open and, <laughs> Um, and try to do a lot of dot connecting. And like I said, I'm, I'm really passionate and I, and I love it. And the more you study it, the more you sort of want to get into it. Yeah. But you have to be kind of wired in a certain way to, you know, both run your own business and take on that risk and everything. So that has a lot to do with it. I mean, when you're when you're sort of wired that way and you can, you know, you take that risk on it. And, and I, you know, have a you got to live, eat, and breathe it. And I guess the, the studying my ass off is the answer to that question, <laughs> how, you, how you keep up with it. Sounds like it sounds like and I assume this is the premise of your podcast now too, right? To kind of brain dump all of this, what, every week or whatever you go to. Yeah, it's, it's actually <laughs> nice. I always tell, I was telling Ethan, it's like a, my, my co-host mm -hmm. um, who he's works at East Daily and does the midstream stuff. And I tell him economics is like a language, you know, you have to speak it and talk it out or you just can't, you know, it, you got to get it out. And, um, yeah. So, I mean, I hang out with my, yeah. my German shepherds have been very silent during this podcast, <laughs> but it's me and the German shepherd and, you know, and studying and everything. And, and so yes, it's getting it out is very helpful. And it's really nice to people to be really honest. I mean, the reason how people hire me is usually seeing me speak and understanding mm -hmm. that they, you know, I might have something that they are interested in or, or could be helpful with them. And that's the, um, that's what I love to do. I, I love helping businesses and companies, helping them succeed and understand and whether that's, whether they're renewable companies or whether they are private equity or it doesn't matter what you're in. It's that energy is, is pretty critical and important, as I've right. said, and it's extremely complex. Um, and it's helpful to have another set of eyeballs or even somebody just to sort of argue and spitball with. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm even though I guess I have a podcast. I'm not a huge podcast listener, but I'm definitely going to get on the bandwagon and, and listen to your episodes. Yeah, <laughs> this has yeah, been really, really good and refreshing. I appreciate all your um, uh, all your information here today. I'll turn it over to Nick. Um, any final questions he has to kind of kind of wrap this up, and then uh, we'll we'll go on from there. Yeah, I just have uh, one one little question. I always like to ask this if I ever uh, find myself in a position to be able to do so. But what kind of advice do you have for young folks like myself uh, that are just getting into the industry? You know, what, what what do you think we should do to prepare ourselves to get into this rather tumultuous industry? I mean, yeah, you're, you're walking into volatility, but you've been walking into, you know, everyone in the past 10 years has been walking into yeah. a volatile market. So I think it's it's that preparing yourself for for loving understanding whether or not you're in it or you're you're not in it you know like there, there's one thing so if you don't love it um and a lot of folks have tried to get out and, and work in renewables because that's where they they see it going so i i mean appreciating how the market is and and how you're going to have to work really hard and you are going to have to differentiate from your peers and that this is not you're just not going to be able to to skate by and have a cushy you know company job because you're i mean i i had a job i worked part-time for an oil company here in town um while i was running my business and i had that job for a year and lost it and that was game changing for me because you know the, there's the the job security behind it really you know isn't there so i think the the working really hard and whether or not you're sort of innovating with, within your company so to sort of uh, as a as my friend robert norton calls it you have the entrepreneurial within your company or the entrepreneurial if you want to you get excited and you learn something and you want to take that out you can totally do that it just is appreciating the depth uh, and work you have to do and, and the commitment. So to entrepreneur, it sounds really cool and sexy and exciting. It's ridiculously hard and, and scary half the time. Um, and that's typically what propels you forward. But I think my, my advice to anyone sort of just getting in the industry now is, um, is study it, know it, know what your company does, know where your assets are at um, and, and rise up with it. Cause I can't tell you how many times I know people in the company that really know nothing about what the company is doing. They know what they're doing and their single focus of what they're doing, but they have no idea where it fits in into, you know, what their assets look like. They've never listened to the earnings call. I mean, the earnings call is you can know everything about your company and you can sure as hell impress your boss, you know, to know that stuff. And I, I think that the um, the younger generation really has to take the torch of saying we're going to sort of lead this and take this forward. And that's just going to you're going to have to work hard and be creative. Um, and that's not a bad thing. But I mean, you guys are all capable of that. Um, but it's not it, it is definitely not going to be easy. And I wouldn't don't expect $60 oil to be here forever. Great. Good answer. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That's kind of negative, so I apologize. I had Debbie Downer over here. That's your new nickname. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> very, very sobering episode. I, I really appreciate uh, having you on and, and for you accepting the, the invitation to, to be on the show here. I look forward to following you on, on your podcast and, and wish you luck there. And again, thank you so much for, for sharing your perspective. And, and Nick, thanks again for uh, being a great co-host. Look forward to, to future episodes uh, with you also. So thank you both for, for being on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You guys have been awesome. The questions have been really good. And yes, I apologize for being the Debbie Downer. <laughs> Tell people what we need to hear. That, that's how yep. it is. <laughs> awesome. No, I, I appreciate all of our, our listeners too. Definitely check out uh, our website and uh, please consider leaving us a review as well. And of course, checking out uh, Trisha's podcast also. So thank you so much for joining us. Take care and we'll catch you in the next episode, everybody. Thanks.